Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Living Room Logic Welcome to Living Room Logic, a place for you to chill out and have a laugh with two scientists who know too much about very, very little. I'm a transatlantic jellyfish wrangler, and watch out, or Andrew will slide into your brain's DMs using a microscope. Today, we're going to talk about the search for aliens, why we haven't found any yet, and how lasers might save the human race from advanced alien space cats. Be an absolute star and follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Come find us on Instagram or Twitter or other social media that no one really cares about. Enjoy our multi-dimensional ramblings. Hello, listeners. It's Aidan, but from the future. I've come to tell you before you listen on that I have the beautiful gift of foresight and I know that Aidan and Andrew worked really hard on their sound production for all of the episodes this season. But because this was one of their first, it originally sounded like someone had emptied out a toolbox into a blender and put that into your ear holes. But fear not, because Andrew will have the wonderful idea to write a huge pile of high quality background music to lay seamlessly under our first conversation. This will improve the sound quality of the episode from that of a pair of budget airline headphones that went through the wash three times, to that of a brand new pair of budget airline headphones that are stuck in an orchestra conductor's pocket. Ah. Oh, and just a tip from the future. Listen to Bill Gates next time he's worried about something. And maybe buy some Pfizer stocks if you have some cash left over in your mattress. I'm Andrew. And I'm joined with... Aidan Long. Ooh. Very good. That's my full name. <laughs> Ooh. My surname's Pride. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about astrobiology, because, you know, <laughs> there's no way to better introduce yourself like a nice, loving human being than talking about sh- stuff way out of your depth. So... <laughs> I, so I completely agree. <laughs> so, uh, astrobiology... Uh, naturally, we're thinking space and biology. And we're talking about the different ways that life forms can maybe take place, how we look for it in space, what we expect to see life in space to look like. And we're just going to go into a few different bits and bobs and see how it goes and try to have a conversation and a laugh and not take this too seriously because we don't want to come across as dry either. So cheers to that. <laughs> cheers to that. That's the first thing that we will say about this podcast is we're, we're probably going to have at least one or two just little sips of a, an alcoholic beverage. Um, yeah, and if you're, try- if you're trying to keep count of like uh, where we are and the, how many drinks we've had, just look at how loud we're being and how many times you have to change your volume because that'll do it. Aiden, want to crack into Topric Uno? We're looking for aliens. We want to try and find <laughs> aliens. So aliens, it's it's exceptionally difficult to do that. Now, we need to disclaim here. Um, I'm a PhD student in marine biology. Has pretty much nothing to do with astrobiology. Andrew, you want to disclaim about your 
um, your knowledge? Well, uh, my area of research is kind of more on molecular biology. So it's very, very small things. And it's, I focus a lot on the brain, mm-hmm. which has absolutely nothing to do with astronomy or yeah. life in space. Brilliant. And, so, that, and that's, yeah. why, that's why we're doing this topic. This is, I, I think it's perfect. <laughs> we have absolutely zero authority to speak to you, the listener, about <laughs> this wonderful uh, and blossoming topic. But you know what? We, we think it's really, really interesting. And we think it's really yeah, cool. Absolutely. We want to we try and open your eyes mm. a little bit, uh, maybe to stop looking down as, as we all are and start looking up a bit more. So, first of all, how do we look for signs of life on other planets? I mean, we don't have the uh, engineering capabilities mm. to travel to different planets, uh, to different yeah. solar systems yet, but we do have ways that we can detect life Pre- on other planets. Or predict life or, on other planets. Yes. More, so, you know, so we there's a few signs that we kind of look for. Uh, Mostly water, because mm-hmm. we look at Earth and we're like, well, everything seems to thrive on water and water alone. So we kind of associate, right, mm-hmm. if there's a bit of water in the atmosphere or anything like that, there's a, you know, there's a chance, there's a hope. And I, th- I think researchers are finding out more and more that like liquid water or water in on another planet, it's more common than we thought. That's what we're looking for in different planets. We're looking for liquid water. Another thing is organic chemicals, which are organic compounds that mm-hmm. are the building blocks of life. So you need to mm-hmm. think about things like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, things mm-hmm. like this. Um, but we won't bore you with details. It's just building blocks of life. You need those chemicals before you can get life to you know evolve. And then uh, I guess the f- the final thing is you need a- an energy source. You need a decent energy source, which isn't absolutely scalding the face off you. Um, you need something that's kind of kind of like a little bit like Goldilocks. Um, kind of. Kind of. And it's and it's as if I prepared this before. Um, as if. <laughs> no, but yeah. a good way to analogize an astrobiologist's methodology is. Uh, you think about the story of Goldilocks. Goldilocks is traipsing along in the woods, and she doesn't have a care in the world. But she's bit she's she's peckish, man. She's peckish. So and she smells she smells some beautiful oatmeal. That's her favorite thing, oatmeal. She rocks up into this big old house with the there's three bowls of oatmeal, and the first one's huge, and it's the oatmeal's lumpy, and she doesn't like it. Um, and the second one, the bowl's tiny and sure, the, the, it's scalding, the, uh, the oatmeal scalding. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and the, you know, the third one, she loved the third one. Um, yeah. And then there's a whole, there's, there's bears, it gets yeah. crazy. Um, don't worry Man, about any of that. Uh, basically, that's a classic, classic story. <laughs> that's pretty much what astrobiology is, right, Andrew? Oh, I forgot what we were talking about for a second there. <laughs> It is. It's in search of that perfect set of conditions that would allow life as we know it to exist in another world. Mm -hmm. And trying to identify those conditions. It's trying to find areas that aren't being, like, 
scolded by a nearby star like the state of the planet Mercury, which is just a barren landscape, Mm -hmm. but also not so far away as some of the more distant planets where it is freezing, freezing temperatures, where we'd get flash frozen if we were out there for too long or even just not long at all. So we're kind of Earth is in that perfect situation and we kind of use all of the signals that we we identify with Earth and we use that and see can we see any Earth-like planets in this perfect middle ground, this perfect Goldilocks zone and that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Two perfectly uh, we, we, unqualified we being, people. We being uh, not uh, us, them. <laughs> we being them. So it turns out that astrobiologists have actually gone out and they've, first of all, they've found thousands of planets in different solar systems. Um, and so not only have they found other planets, but they've actually found planets within Goldilocks zones in other solar systems. So that's Mm. that place where it's not too hot, it's not too cold. And there is things like uh, possibly signals of (coughs) of water or of uh, other um, compounds that you need for life to to start. Astrobiologists are using several different methods. They all encompass either finding a planet due to changes in gravity, due to, uh, you know, a planet masking um, in front of a sun. Um, and and basically you need a, a, a pretty intricate knowledge of physics to, to find these planets. I mean, the methods that they use are pretty robust and they at least know that there are signals of certain chemicals and those chemicals could potentially harbor life. But whether there's life or not on the planet, actually, that uh, remains to be seen. To like boil it down to its simplest thing, the, what, for example, when they're looking for water, you can just think of it like looking for a rainbow in the rain. Okay, When there's rain coming down and light goes through those water droplets at the correct angle and all of that, you will recognize changes in color. And a lot of the time what these astrobiologists are doing is they wait until the planet has gone in front of another star. And if they can see that rainbow-like spectrum of light, they can recognize, right, well, there's there's a probability that that atmosphere has water. And that's on a very basic level, but they use a similar train of thought to then identify maybe signals of certain ca- uh, gases in the atmosphere. Like our atmosphere is mostly mostly nitrogen, there's oxygen, carbon dioxide, all that stuff. And if it, mm-hmm. we find a planet with just a similar makeup, in, we go, ooh, maybe there's a chance. Just and we go and, and we get real curious and, and we, we, we like put, they put their hands up and they're like, we found nothing, but it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool, right? There's a chance. There's a chance, and that's all we need, Andrew. All we need is a chance, <laughs> just a chance. Yeah. yeah. So I think that brings us to uh, me asking you a pretty big question, and of course, you need to know this answer, Andrew. But do, do I? How okay. many of these planets would have life? See, it's an extraordinarily um, open question. Because there's absolutely no way to disprove if every single one of them has life or absolutely none of them has life. Mm-hmm. But, and there's always a but, there was a 
physicist, an astronomer called Frank Drake, and he came up with an equation to just basically come up with an estimate of if there is a likelihood of other civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. And he looked at how many stars were being formed each year, how many planets were around these stars. You have to take away all of the gas giants because there's no life as we know it on them. So mm -hmm. you're just looking for rocky, rocky planets surrounding stars. And there are billions of these stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. And around each of them, there's asteroids, there's rocks, there's things being dragged in by... The, gra the gravity and sometimes they form rocky planets and mm -hmm. then you need to look at how many of these rocky planets are in that Goldilocks zone mm -hmm. how many of them if they're too close there's no use you could have a planet that is only a couple hundred kilometers away from the front of the star and it will spin and spin and it'll spin so fast that there's no way life could feasibly exist on it mm -hmm. plus it would be bound to eventually just crash into the star anyway so it, it, it's a bit pointless yeah and, and again we're looking in that goldilocks zone so then we identify that so we have all of these different planets and then we have to go right how many of these planets can develop life and uh, we we have to the way that this works is that well we have a sample size of one Mm -hmm. We are in one planet within this Goldilocks zone. So if you take the presumption that if there is enough time and the right conditions, life will develop. And that's where the Drake equation gets to. Mm -hmm. And it eventually comes to that there is a that there's probably between a thousand and a hundred million planets with civilizations in the Milky Way. And that's and just that's just amazing. That is un yeah. unbelievable. And I suppose, like, like it's really cool and it's really scary. It's all of the emotions and it's all of the things. But it does beg the question that if there are a thousand to one hundred million, if it's a hundred million, for example, if you're looking up into the night sky and you're literally seeing other life forms' suns, mm -hmm. which is kind of mind-boggling and awesome, like the literal awesome, just gobsmacked. But it begs a question of um, where are they? Why where haven't are they? we seen them? <laughs> like, that, is, uh... Uh, that is like <laughs> that's what I've yeah. been wondering, and it's so funny when I was when I was doing my research for this, I was I I, I was astonished when I figured out that Drake's equation there could be as much as you know a yeah. million hundred million. Uh, yeah. different planets in habitable zones or in that Goldilocks zone of around different stars which could harbour life and not only life but sentient life life yeah. that knows what it's doing and life that could potentially try and communicate with other mm -hmm. planets life forms in yeah. other ha habitable zones it's a what I think it's a wonderful thing to think about, especially at the moment when uh, you you look next door and you look across the road and you see how the the world is a little bit a uh, bit off right now. And then it's nice to sometimes think that well, there is a likelihood that there are a hundred million civilizations far more complex and advanced than us that if they found us could end it all tomorrow. So, there, so there's yeah. an optimistic way of looking at this and there's <laughs> a pessimistic way of looking at this. And I actually only ever thought of it optimistically that we would find other life forms. But this is why if, we balance each other. <laughs> yeah, this is this is like, exactly like, like, this is why hey, you're, I, you're my yang. Saying, 
I'm just saying, yeah, what what up, me ying. Uh, but like, <laughs> but like, you have to think about it from that point of view. Like, it's really enjoyable to watch all those movies and stuff. But like, realistically, any of these uh, alien creatures or anything that come to Earth, usually we destroy them with a nuke. Do you really think they haven't dealt with that before? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and do you think that yeah. they took that into account? And I think that's a good, that's yeah. a that's a great way of us to to bring up the fact that is it actually Enrico Fermi who came up with the idea that yeah. there was yeah. a spectrum of civilizations that could potentially yeah. be out there? Type one civilizations, which are similar to us, were slightly less than type one. Where we we're we're nearly there. We're nearly there. <laughs> What is a type 1 civilization? So Fermi described a type 1 civilization as a population that can take advantage of all of the energy on its planet. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't uh, it hasn't extended its tendrils into space. It's just t- it's at that point where it is optimizing using all of the different forms of energy in its yeah. planet. How do we equate to that? So we're like a, a point 0.8 Right? Or yeah, we're like, we're like a point eight. So we're we're nearly there. We're nearly able to harness all of the energy that our mm. our planet provides. Yeah. And we're talking solar, wind, yeah. waves, ocean, we're, geothermal. Every, the sustainable energy source of our planet. Yeah. Right. Well, it's the sustainable. Like uh, we we people call it sustainable, but it's also the infinite energy source that is constant it's definitely not completely infinite but in comparison to something like fossil fuels or anything like at a, that at a, on a human time scale it on a human time scale times. infinite we're much more likely to destroy ourselves before we run out of wind to spin a turbine okay and then yeah. that's so that's where we get a little bit sci-fi now on on everyone yeah. is when we start talking about type 2 type 3 yeah. civilizations well, okay what, what's a type two? i, I want to say something cool about a type 2 so <laughs> I, 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 it's something that like uh I, i'd say people have kind of half thought about and all that right but type 2 is defined as a civilization that can harness all of the energy of its star right and they have an awesome name for how they do this and it's called a dyson sphere oh yeah and that's when they wrap a star with solar panels and all of the energy that comes out of that star, they immediately harness it. So if you think that there's a lot of energy on Earth, the sheer output of a star, to, to, we can't even fathom the amount of energy and the amount of possibility. Mm-hmm. Like, um, we, we, we think it's awesome when we plug something pretty big and heavy into our outlet. And we're like, man, wow, cool, that's a lot of power. This is a <laughs> di- diff- different kettle of fish. Like, this is a completely different thing. It is something that's feasible because it's. We're not talking about you know going right up to the surface of the sun and you know just like a sticker, just shoving a solar panel onto it. Like this would be much larger than that. It would be like a donut ring around the sun yeah. that would just collect all of the energy, and it's just crazy i remember i remember reading something apparently they in the in the 90s they looked for these dyson spheres and okay so when you put a a sun-sized structure around Mm -hmm. the sun with solar panels easily you can think that it will change the the signature that will be given off by the light from thousands or millions of light years away um so they were trying to look for it and they never found one yeah 
So we just simply haven't found one yet, but that is a potential way that you could gain enough energy to travel to different solar systems. Yeah. Because that moves on to the Type 3 then, right? Uh, that The, the Type 3 is several solar systems. Yeah, it's controlling much of the energy across a galaxy. If there was someone at that level of technology, that level of development, and humans encountered them, they'd be a god. Yeah. We, we, we simply cannot fathom that much power. It's like um, counting jelly beans in a jar, right? Mm -hmm. Where we find it extremely difficult to actually picture and actually look at something and really know how much of it is there. Yeah. To be honest, once numbers go beyond 20, we kind of lose our ability to accurately guess how much of it it is. Mm -hmm. And it, we're talking about, like, maybe the amount of energy on Earth. The amount of energy in the sun is probably 10 million times more. 20, 30, 40 million times so more. You're, so you're saying that we're biologically restrained yeah, absolutely. to our perceptions. Absolutely. So you're saying what you're saying yeah. is that we we might not even perceive other other life forms. I haven't even said half of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this sort of cool. stuff really excites me because yeah. it's totally in the realm of sci-fi. So I think that's yeah. maybe why people listen to an astrobiologist and they're like, "Oh, you're watching too much Star Trek, too much, <laughs> you know what I mean, too much Star Wars." But fair like, enough, like. But yeah, I mean, I mean, let's not go there either, you know, because yeah. uh, that's they're both beloved series, but. Yeah. It's a paradox that we can't get our head around. We haven't encountered any of these these type two or type three uh, civilizations. No. Um, and and there are ideas for how we could explain that. Do you know anything about that, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I can give it a whiz and see if I come up with something. There's two main ideas. And um, Fermi continued his thinking and he came up with the idea of filters. The reasoning he came up with was that it's only relatively recently in the cosmic calendar that the universe has cooled down. And the universe used to be a lot hotter. It used to be a lot more hectic. If, if, you go back, uh, if you go back a billion years on Earth, it's a molten ball of heat, mm -hmm. you know? And the idea is that given the relative recency that the universe has has relative recency that the universe has cooled down it, it might only be like in the modern era of the cosmic calendar aka the last seven eight hundred million years that yeah. maybe there was enough of these planets that that could settle and cool and this could come to be that's one idea mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of ideas about the great filters and if you're thinking of the great filters, just think about all of the different mass extinction events. Yeah. All of the things that really destroy life. And mm -hmm. there's lots of things. It could be asteroids. It could be ecological change. All of this different stuff. And there's even trying to balance our intelligence and our technology. Like a another example is in the event of a nuclear war, where that's it. It is quite destructive. So it's kind of like trying to always remain intelligent enough to control our technology is another one. 
do you know more about the mass extinction events by any chance? I would, I would, I would. Yeah, know, I, I would know a good deal because of the fact that I'm a marine biologist about the mass extinction events. But I think, I think, just before we 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 talk about that, I think you know what you're also getting at there is that maybe it might be quite difficult for life to persevere in the grand yeah. universal timescale, potentially type one two three civilizations have risen and fallen mm-hmm. on several occasions yeah absolutely. and we, we simply on a completely different wavelength so to say yeah okay so that's pretty cool i mean so i will go into those i'll go into those mass extinctions a, a slight bit basically i mean again our sample size is one earth yeah. our lovely big blue planet we love it so much Oh, we're doing dirty things to it. We're terrible. Um, <laughs> or we should be ashamed. But there there have actually been five mass extinctions in the Earth's history in terms of uh, when since life has evolved about, about four billion years ago. So there were four situations where life could have been completely and utterly um, mm-hmm. destroyed. And there are actually a lot of paleontological theories that life evolved before the life that we know that evolved four billion years ago. But there were these events called great bombardment events. Basically, Mm -hmm. asteroids pummeled the Earth to a point where it was simply not a decent enough environment for life to, to persevere, even on planets in habitable zones in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, it's very interesting to even think about it, to think of, well, like we started with, if there's water, there is life, but there's always been water on Earth, because every asteroid that came burning into our atmosphere and crashing down had ice along with it, comets as well, and that even in these atmospheres, there's water. But there's a persistent belief that on Earth, in the most extreme circumstances... There is life, and there's actually a name for these life forms, these life forms on Earth, and they're called extremophiles, okay? Mm -hmm. And these extremophiles are basically, they look at the deepest, darkest part of the ocean, and they'll look right up in the heights of the atmosphere, and they'll look in the hottest places on Earth, Mm -hmm. and they'll see if there's life. Because the more extreme a location that we can find life, the the more we can believe the fact that if we find a habitable planet, that there's a chance. So one example is an area in Ethiopia, and it's called the Danikil Depression, and it's a very hot. It, it consists of hypersaline sites, magnesium-rich brines, hyperacidic and hot pools on an active volcano. Wow. Yeah, and it's worth having a uh, Google of it because if you look at it, it's beautiful. Yeah. All of these mineral colors, bright yellows guessing, and greens. I'm guessing it looks something like Mars. Yeah, it does. It does. It's wow. it's like Mars with more activity. Because mm-hmm. what they kept finding... So there was a, a scientist called uh, Barbara Cavalazzi, mm-hmm. whose name I probably just botched. <laughs> But she was studying it, and she said that if she was studying the extreme conditions in Dalol in the Danakil Depression, one could draw parallels to extraterrestrial research to look at in these extreme situations. And another good example would even be in Venus, 
where it is extraordinarily hot and there is extremely high atmospheric pressures. And what this group found, right, they found that there was the presence of ultra-small microorganisms in this crazy environment with an ultra-low pH of 0.25. Mm-hmm. Temperatures at 90 degrees Celsius, uh, read like all of this crazy stuff, heavy metal content, heavy salt content. But it can draw comparisons because Venus is a hectic place. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for, like for example, they sent a <laughs> they sent a, a Voyager or not a Voyager, but they sent a machine to go to Venus to land on the surface, and it lasted a grand eight and a half seconds. Oh, uh, yeah. it just immediately that. crashed and burned and melted and got crushed by the atmosphere. So- and they have like they have recordings, and most of the recordings are from it falling through the atmosphere. And then it lands and it just goes, whoop, whoop. <laughs> it's like, and they're like, okay, 100 million well spent. Right? I mean, guys, yeah. high five. You know? And they're all clapping and hugging yeah. each other. You're like, you know, yeah. again, astrobiologists. I know, know so, yeah. But no, that, yeah. I think that's great. That, that, that just shows in itself that the atmosphere of Venus, it, the atmosphere of Venus is way thicker than Earth's. Yeah. Um, and it, that means that as well, Venus has a much greater uh, density. So its gravity mm-hmm. is much greater as well. So that's what happened that the, the lander that went to Venus just managed to send off information back to Earth, yeah. to researchers on Earth before it was completely and utterly obliterated by <laughs> super hot temperature and Crazy. super high yeah. pressure. It was mm-hmm. like physically crushed. You know, the cool thing is as well is that, I mean, if we're talking about Venus, I, I've I've read up on some stuff that talked about the, the atmosphere of Venus being so thick that actually there is a part of Venus's atmosphere quite high up that okay. is about 25 degrees Celsius. No way. And that's, that it's quite stable. So that's crazy. Could there be? Ew. You know, could you? Yeah. Could you potentially harbor life in, in a mm. place that okay, there's no solid ground, but originally one of the most prominent theories is that life evolved in the ocean at one of these hydrothermal vents. So could life evolve in a different way, maybe in the atmosphere of Venus at at twenty five degrees? I. I suppose it's kind of like what they say, uh, the 25 monkeys on typewriters will eventually write Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's... No, I think think it's given enough time Mm -hmm. on a much larger than human scale, it's definitely possible. Absolutely anything is possible with enough time. That's the way that that works. Yeah, but but it's really cool, and I really like that. And even going back to that Dalol thing, uh, there was then other people who were then like, "Oh, actually, we looked in the same place and we didn't find anything." Sorry, bye. <laughs> and there's there's been like a, a debate going back and forth, and they're like, "No, we definitely found something," and they're like, "No, we used a better technique, and we made sure nothing got in, and we found life." And they're like, "Well." No, that that's not right. And then they're like, no, we used a better technique and we didn't find anything. And it's just this <laughs> argument going back. And like, you can 100% bet that if we ever did find life, there would 100% be the argument of, Asher, that probably went up and down with the ship, didn't it? Like, oh, God. Yeah, like, 100%. 100, 100 they, they'd be like, yeah, that's like, oh, so we brought life there. Because there's yeah. millions of different bacteria on Earth. 
And there's still a large portion of them which aren't categorized because it, it's impossible. The amount of soil bacteria alone, mm-hmm. it's impossible to characterize all of these things. So it could easily happen. Um, and that's something that they're debating right now. But I, I do want to quickly move on to something else which I think is awesome. And I, I told you about this beforehand because it's talking about the recognition of life and it's and it's talking about how we define life and how that might actually be holding us back from discovering life because we have a really anthropocentric view on life which just means we look at us we look at where we came from and we try to see the same thing everywhere else and in practice uh life is pretty mechanical it's a cyclical process energy goes in we do something with it energy goes out we either split as cells or we reproduce small organisms and then they come together and we're a group of cells and they create complex things mm-hmm. but imagine a scenario where some kind of environment caused large physical structures organize maybe through a combination of gases in a gas giant a hundred meters wide these structures use some source of energy to control the gases and pressure balance inside some kind of membrane kind of like a bubble and every few years one of these gas bubbles get enough energy to build enough liquid membrane to split by chance Mm -hmm. and over billions of years the specific mechanisms that these membranes are built on changes and eventually this differentiation starts to happen and over trillions of years maybe the adaptions are made to allow this form of life to exist in different environments just these bubbles splitting and twirling and when you think about, like, would you even recognize that at life? Like, you'd most people would probably look at that as, that's an interesting natural phenomenon. That's a, look at that, physics working and all of that. Yeah. But we couldn't, we couldn't really look at that perspective and say, right, that's life. Mm-hmm. Because when you, you, ha- you have to then put it the other way around. What if you put yourself in the shoes of this trillion-year-old gas giant, right? Let's say this life form saw a human, okay? Then you have to kind of change the, the, the definition of what is seeing, okay? Uh, it could be its individual cells are hundreds of meters long and it has developed this, like, sight and it sees wavelengths at different uh, spectrums than we see it at and the amount of time it takes information to actually go to its wherever to actually recognize this are hundreds of meters long so by the time you've come and gone this life form doesn't even notice it's like oh static blip nothing really happened and even on that level let's say if it was on a radio wavelength right where it was receiving this information that would go straight through you You'd yeah. never notice. This this other life form would never notice. And I think that um, what's really interesting about this idea is that whenever we think of life, we're focused on us. And even when we're looking at, like, we're talking about civilizations. Okay? How much more anthropocentric can we get? This is how we know life works. So this is how we presume it will keep going. And we presume that there is life other places doing the same thing. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's such a brilliant point to make. I love the idea of gas giant beings. They're somehow... Their perception of time and space is completely different. The way that they replicate yeah. is completely different. On all of their senses, they could be sensing completely different things uh, at completely different yeah. um, scales. So, I think yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great idea for for astrobiologists, not even for astrobiologists, but for mm-hmm. just everyone to to realize that we could just be one type of life. Yeah. And everything on the planet is one way in which life evolved, in which mm-hmm. all of these crazy feats happened, mm-hmm. all of evolution, natural selection, all of that could just be one way of life evolving. I, I, I think that's an important thing because, like we were saying, if you have an infinite probability of these things coming about over the vastness of space... You need to consider much more than just what we have as an example for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, like even <laughs> like even in the movies, you see these these green lads with their two legs holding a gun, and, <laughs> and you're just, and you're like, yeah, like let's be honest, that's probably not, not that's that might not happen, like because yeah, like I, what, I don't what, know what sci-fi <laughs> artists were thinking. Like we're just gonna make his head huge. He's gonna be really tiny legs, and he's gonna be green. Yeah, and huge eyes. Yeah, <laughs> the whole thing. Like, but like that's like we can't even comprehend it. Like, because we need to be able to look at life and recognize ourselves in it. Like, we need to like see this alien life form, but be able to have some kind of empathy with it. Like, some kind of this creature must have a desire, a want, it must have some kind of fear, it could be, this creature could be cruel, okay? Like, it's this kind of, like, shoving humanity into this other thing, which I I fear that we're looking for, and I'm like, what are the odds? What are the odds that even if life existed on another planet, let's say it was a planet three times the size of Earth, but it was in the habitable zone, what are the odds they'd have two legs? Very low. Your knees, our knees get wrecked anyway as we're aging. We're, <laughs> we're, we're feeling our legs kind of go and we're just like, oh God. If the gravity was three times the size, we wouldn't, there's not a chance. There'd be a different way of moving. Maybe we'd be much more snake-like, Yeah. to, to be honest. And to just um, consider the diversity of life on Earth and to actually look at that and say, right, this is one planet, one planet. It is absolutely possible. There's crazy things like, sh- like just from going from sharks to gorillas to microbiota to all of these different things. It's a to open your eyes and even past that to to think of our gas giant bubble friends. And I the think pod- we, should, we need to think about our gas giant bubble. Our friends. Gas I giant think that's exactly friends. what the species name is going to be: gas I giant think- <laughs> bubble friend. I hope so. In italics. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Gas us, giant us. No, but okay, so I I think another great point to make from that is that the Goldilocks zone, or this habitable zone, is probably much larger. Yeah. Because the habitable zone for human-like or Earth-like life, that is, first of all, we said there could be a hundred million planets that have Earth-like life. Yeah. 
but there can there you know you have to you have to wager that because of this this change of perception that there's even more yeah, yeah. of a habitable zone for mm-hmm. non-earth like life yeah and absolutely and i think um so it, it might it, it might even be worth mentioning some things that don't quite fit that model like europa so europa is one of the Gallian moons which was discovered in the 1600s by Galileo. It's for the... If you get one of your garden telescopes and you point it at Jupiter, you might see four little blips nearby, and those are the four Gallian moons. Europa's one that's really interesting. And now Jupiter, Jupiter as a planet, is absolutely nowhere near the Goldilocks zone. Nowhere near. Very far away. And Jupiter is very big and very scary. Yet, yet... (laughs) On these planets which circle Jupiter, some really interesting stuff happens. You know, there are several moons around these planets. Mm. They're not in the habitable zone. They're freezing cold. And they have zero atmosphere. Or or very, very, very thin atmosphere to the point where you really wouldn't think that there would be any sort of life evolving. But researchers have found by by sending um, probes and, and space ships to uh, to these moons that there's geysers in these thick mm. ice uh, surfaces yeah, yeah. of these moons, and so they actually calculated that there's kilometers, hundreds of kilometers of liquid water wow. yeah. underneath, um, and that's because of the geothermal energy of the crust of the inside of the moon so the moons are going around these huge giant planets in in the middle of the solar system and their gravity is being basically waxed and waned waxed and waned and that's heating up the inside of the moon and that's keeping the water in underneath several kilometers of ice liquid yeah which is amazing and so you Crazy. have to think that that could actually harbor some some sort of Earth-like life because you look down at those hydrothermal vents that we were talking about yeah, before. Yeah, exactly. And maybe there's hydrothermal vents on Europa or yeah. Enceladus. And oh. maybe those um, hydrothermal vents are exuding uh, nutrient-rich crust mm. water that contains the building blocks of life. Just, just to think of all of that and how it's it's a sci-fi idea. It's a sci-fi idea to turn to someone and say, "Right, forget the sun, forget the sun. Just take this giant planet and send the moon around it, mm-hmm. and it, this planet is going to be so cold on the outside that it freezes over this this, this water-covered planet." But the inside is going to be nice and toasty at a good stable temperature because it's constantly getting squeezed and then released and squeezed and released over and over again like a bit of blue tack yeah. when you're trying to get a good stretch out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's keeping an ocean between this outside crust of ice and this inside little ball of, of rock and molten metal. Mm-hmm. And in the middle, it's almost like a a meta Goldilocks zone where the outside <laughs> the outside is completely uninhabitable and the inside of the core is completely uninhabitable but right in the middle we have a sweet spot but it's crazy and then there's even like the consideration of the sheer amount of radiation that comes off of Jupiter mm-hmm. and that's crazy 
you know, as human beings, we know that radiation equals not good. Uh, radiation, <laughs> radiation messes up with our genetic, um, our genetic writing, and our yeah. knocks knocks things asunder. So, yeah. to us, the idea that you could exist in radiation is crazy. But that doesn't mean it's not possible because this has been going on as long as there's been ice on Earth. Uh, there's been water on Earth as long as there's been life on Earth. This moon has been getting twisted and twisted and let go and spun and spun. And maybe that's enough. Maybe there's a protective aspect of the outer ice sheet. And it's hard to know because it's really far away and really dangerous. There are ideas. There are plenty of ideas to go to one of these moons. Um, I think it's one of the coolest, one of the coolest potential missions, except for, of course, going to Mars, which is... You know, that's in the works. Yeah. But sending um remote mission yeah, to Mars yeah. where you could potentially send a lander, that's a beautiful mm-hmm. sound, a lander to Europa that could drill through, I think it's something like, I mean, these moons could be like a kilometer of ice. But, oh, um, more even. Yeah, so, you know, we have devices that can drill a kilometer mm-hmm. deep vice but we do that to be honest we do it in extremely harsh conditions on earth we do we go True. to to the arctic we go to the most inhospitable place of earth and mm-hmm. we drill so we know how to do that we know how that's possible and the, there is that whole other logistical aspect of a payload you could send off of earth it need to be lightweight it need to be of a certain size yeah, yeah, yeah. um but maybe if we just get past that, if we had that technology, we could send a robot probe down this this tunnel that's a kilometer uh, thick yeah, and yeah. and send it into that deep sea ocean. And what would it see? You know, um, yeah. it would probably be bloody terrifying, is what it would yeah. be. <laughs> You see this huge squid (laughs) alien and then the camera turns off and then you're just freaking out. Everyone's screaming and the world ends. Basically, everyone just, you know, turns anarchic like so. Turns out Europa was an egg for a giant space squid and it's coming to Earth. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Oops. So... Uh, you know, there are other really cool missions that are in the works. Well, they're not exactly... Like, that's under, really cool. That is very cool. But there, yeah. uh, there are some other astrobiological uh, research uh, programs that are that have been announced and probably you know, the one I'm most excited about. And something that I've been excited about for years was Stephen Hawking was part of this program just before he died. Um, mm. Professor Stephen Hawking. It's it's called Breakthrough Starshot. This program is is pretty promising. It really grabbed my attention when I heard it. Pretty much what these people want to do, and it sounds absolutely daft. They want to develop tiny robots called they call them nanobots. Mm-hmm. They want to make them as affordable per item as an iPhone. Wow. They they want to send them just up into uh, Earth's orbit, and then they want to they have a, a basically a, a sail attached to the back, and yeah. the sail absorbs uh, light. Okay, um, okay. Cool. they want to develop a laser 
that has one kilometer radius. So it's two kilometer Ra- diameter. Radius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, was like, I was like, oh, it, sh- it shoots. It yeah, goes as far yeah, as No, no, no. <laughs> so they want to develop, they want to, basically, they want to develop a laser. Well, you know what? If we ever come across one of those Civilization 3 versions and they're just made out of cats, we have the technology for them. If we make that giant laser pointer, we, <laughs> we, we, can, we can point them in a direction and we can watch the space cat gods flurry after it to bother I, some I, different solar system. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may be possible. But like, so yeah, they want to get these, they want to, okay, so... <laughs> They want to get this huge laser, all right? Which we haven't invented yet, mind okay. you, but they're working on it. They, they want to scale it up to about a kilometer or two kilometer size. They want to use this to speed that nanobot up okay. to a fifth of the speed of light. Okay, I've heard something like that before, yeah. For lack of better term, they want to absolutely yeet this <laughs> nanobot. Like, if Kanye West was to say it, he would say, you want to absolutely yeet it. They yeah. want to send this nanobot to Proxima Centauri, which is the smallest Whoa. star in the, the the closest solar system to ours. It's about wow. four it's about four light years away from our solar system. Um, okay. Because of the fact that these nanobots are the price of uh, an iPhone, yeah. they want to send thousands of these. Because the thing is, when you speed up a, a device to the fifth of the speed of light, chances are it's going to be completely and utterly obliterated by some sort of debris. I mean, just like our solar system, yeah, there's yeah. a large asteroid belt system around the Alpha Centauri solar system. Yeah. Um, so they want to send these things through that. And all they want is one uh, or a few of these nanobots to snapshot some of some pictures mm. of some, either the stars or the exoplanets that are um, orbiting these stars and transmit some of that data back. So I just think that's the most ambitious, ridiculous yeah. and amazing idea. It's crazy. I think that that is so cool. I just, like you said... It's going to be the roughest and shittest landing for these <laughs> tiny nanobots. <laughs> like, it's like one of those little uh, animations that you just hear screaming like, ah! <laughs> going to... Boom! Yeah. <laughs> hey kids, want to learn about the Coriolis effect? Yeah! <laughs> yeah. But like, I do love that idea. And I also, something that I also like about it, because I love one thing about all these ambitious projects, where everyone... Right now, if we sent it off, what an amazing project. What a high technological project. But it's going to take so long to get there, and it's going to get so like a decent amount of time to even send information back, <laughs> that by the time that's happening, we're going to be looking at our then-modern technology and looking back at this dinosaur we've sent to this <laughs> different solar system going like... That's an absolute uh, great point. I... I the the thing yeah. that is the the the, the human made device that is the furthest away from Earth right now is Voyager. Yeah. Um, yes. And that when was that when was that made? It was the sixties, the fifties. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not. Even so sure. yeah, no, I think it's the fifties. So <laughs> you know, you could send one of these star shots past the Voyager. 
Oh, yeah. You could hit the Voyager with one of these little nanobots. Why would you do that? Uh-huh. <laughs> because, so you could... <laughs> uh, um, America's because best we, sniper rifle. Because we can. <laughs> because we can. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, these, these nanobots, they're going to go flying past Proxima Centauri at a fifth the speed of light. I don't know how they're going to rotate their axis and take a photo. I don't know. <laughs> How do you? <laughs> maybe, it... maybe, maybe that's why they have so many things. Yeah. Maybe they're going right. We're gonna shoot them all out and hope that one of them's pointed in the right direction. When, when has the term "a shot in the dark" ever been so oh, well placed? That is an extreme. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so I think I think it's I I just I love the idea of the project. Um, that is awesome. I think let's look forward to it. Yeah, I think so too. Do you, when is that? Um, what's the aims? Uh, well, first of all, the I mean the the laser uh, array hasn't they... even been invented. <laughs> the material for the sails has not been invented. Okay. We we don't have a material, Andrew, that can absorb <laughs> the, the, a, a laser that's a kilometer in diameter or two kilometers in that's... diameter. We simply oh. don't have the. The capabilities yet to absorb like, I, energy. That's crazy. I like it. it like I, it's one of those things. It's like uh, that the, they dream it up and then they try to make it. But like, I, like it's it's just so crazy to even think of the whole concept behind solar sails. Again, like even back to what we were saying about how much energy can you harness. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like a middle step when we're trying to harness the power of light and the sun. Absolutely. And all of that, like that's that's kind of what this is getting at. Where with our normal fuels, we would never be able to produce enough energy to propel something to these stars. Okay, like even with modern space shuttles, we use gravity swings, where we get we go around the moon and it shoots us out towards the next place we're going. Yeah. We use it as a little accelerator thing, a little slingshot to send us out. And this is the next step. It's because a, it's, it, it's an energy shortcut, isn't it? It's, it's an energy absolutely. shortcut. You're yeah. literally saying we don't have the capability to put enough fuel in that tank. Yep. Um, so we're going to use the gravity of <laughs> one of the planets yep. on the way yep. uh, to, to account for that. Yeah, literally. And then even that's what we're trying to do with a solar sail, isn't it? You're trying to take advantage of the momentum of photons, which are which is what makes up light. These crazy little particles, or are they particles? Waves. It's crazy. It's so next level, and I love it. It's okay, awesome. Andrew. This whole discussion has been wonderful. Yeah, it was a good um, crack, wasn't it? Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? There's so much in this area. And I, th- I think that out of sheer exposure to documentaries, to, you know, there's a generation of kids that you know, on a Saturday around lunchtime, they'd sit down, turn on the Discovery Channel, and just, they got caught by, like, the Universe documentary, and they just got, got all of that. And there's a generation before that which watched Cosmos. It's wonderful that it's a conversational topic to talk yeah. about space and even though we're two lads who you know have no right to actually discuss this as if we know what we're talking about we can still talk about it because we appreciate how bloody awesome it is yeah i totally agree it's just one of the coolest things that you can talk about uh, to do with yeah. science i think um yeah, I think so too. going out to that big picture 
one of one of the take homes maybe from this conversation is that we need to stop looking down and look up a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> except you know, uh, except for when you're sneezing, please still do that into your elbow. Oh no, but elbow. Your elbow. Yeah. <laughs> and wear a mask, you dumb idiot. This is the end of the podcast. We hope that you enjoyed your time. If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skint, why don't you give us some money? Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.